everyone, this episode is brought to you by bunnyslippers.com. Keep your feet warm, and why not get something sent to you in the mail? Feel like uh, you're getting something, you know? Hey, get something in the mail during self-isolation. Yeah, that's it. Bunnyslippers.com. Keep your feet warm. Um, yeah, yeah, no, this is definitely to put a timestamp on when this show's coming out. It is March 20-somethingth. I've kind of quit, I don't know, caring about the time. Um, it's just kind of a countdown till late April when the kids go back to school, and I can, I don't know, I'm, I'm honestly just waiting for free tests, or not tests, just, I'm waiting for tests to be available in my area so I can go back to work, because I was sick, now I'm not sick, and I can't go back to work until I test clean. Uh, yeah, so, hey, I'm gonna be doing this for a while, I'm bored, uh, none of my podcasts are podcasting because of the fact that everyone's sick, doesn't want to be around each other. This is the great thing about being a one-man show. I just find stuff, I put it up, and I put it out. I'm probably going to be doing some Skype interviews with some folks to keep this train moving. I want you to have entertainment. That's what I've always wanted. I've wanted to, you know, people who can't read. I want them to be able to read and listen to uh, some classic literature. People who have learning disabilities and you know, don't like to read. I want them to know who the classics are, my brother Joe. And this is this is kind of why I do this. And also, it's nice to have stuff to listen to all day long. I listen to podcasts all day long when I'm not making podcasts or working on stuff that I can't listen to podcasts. And I just want to say, support small podcasts. You know, there's all those, like, ear howls out there and you're your big media types and stuff like that support small podcasts help keep us going we keep you going we fill your day with all kinds of stuff help keep us going especially in a time like this where some of us are unemployed if you want to do that that'd be great there's more important stuff to give money and time to than podcasters right now i'll be super super duper serious about that so do what you can and remember we are available on facebook um you know, PGTTCM Black Clock Audio Tales, Arthur Mackin's Three Imposters. This is one that I've done bits and pieces of when it was uh, People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos 24-7. But now, hey, with this, with Black Clock Audio Tales, I finally get to cover it. If you want to go back through the catalogs and listen to old stuff, I've got various people recording this back when I was trying to do that. But hey, here we go. Three Imposters. We're available on Instagram. And also anywhere that you're going to find podcasts and Black Clock Audio Tales Special Edition. Strange Occurrence in Clockenwell. Mr. Dyson had inhabited for some years a couple of rooms in a moderately quiet street in Bloomsbury, where, as he somewhat pompously expressed it, he held his finger on the pulse of life without being deafened with the thousand rumors of the main arteries of London. It was to him a source of peculiar if esoteric gratification that from the adjacent corner of Tottenham Court Road a hundred lines of omnibuses went to the four quarters of the town. He would dilate on the facilities for visiting Dalston and dwell on the admirable line that knew extremist Ealing and the streets beyond Whitechapel. His rooms, which had been originally furnished apartments, he had gradually purged of their more 
peccant parts and though one would not find here the glowing splendors of his old chambers in the street off the strand there was something of severe grace about the appointments which did credit to his taste the rugs were old and of true faded beauty the etchings nearly all of them proofs printed by the artist made a good show with broad white margins and black frames and there was no spurious black oak indeed there was but little furniture of any kind a plain and honest table square and sturdy stood in one corner a seventeenth-century settle fronted the hearth and two wooden elbow chairs and a bookshelf of the empire made up the equipment with an exception worthy of note for dyson cared for none of these things his place was at his own bureau a quaint old piece of lacquered work at which he would sit for hour after hour with his back to the room engaged in the desperate pursuit of literature or as he termed his profession the chase of the phrase the neat array of pigeonholes and drawers teemed and overflowed with manuscript and notebooks the experiments and efforts of many years and the inner well a vast and cavernous receptacle was stuffed with accumulated ideas dyson was a craftsman who loved all the detail and the technique of his work intensely and if as has been hinted he deluded himself a little with the name of artist yet his amusements were eminently harmless and so far as can be ascertained he or the publishers had chosen the good part of not tiring the world with printed matter here then dyson would shut himself up with his fancies experimenting with words and striving as his friend the recluse of bayswater strove with the almost invincible problem of style but always with a fine confidence extremely different from the chronic depression of the realist he had been almost continuously at work on some scheme that struck him as well-nigh magical in its possibilities since the night of his adventure with the ingenious tenant on the first floor in abington grove and as he laid down the pen with a glow of triumph he reflected that he had not viewed the streets for five days in succession with all the enthusiasm of his accomplished labor still working in his brain he put away his papers and went out pacing the pavement at first in that rare mood of exultation which finds in every stone upon the way the possibilities of a masterpiece it was growing late and the autumn evening was drawing to a close amidst veils of haze and mist and in the stilled air the voices and the roaring traffic and incessant feet seemed to dyson like the noise upon the stage when all the house is silent in the square the leaves rippled down as quick as summer rain and the street beyond was beginning to flare with the lights in the butcher's shops and the vivid illumination of the green grocer it was a saturday night and the swarming populations of the slums were turning out in force 
the battered women in rusty black had begun to paw the lumps of cagmag and others gloated over unwholesome cabbages and there was a brisk demand for four ale dyson passed through these night fires with some relief he loved to meditate but his thoughts were not as de quincey's after his dose he cared not two straws whether onions were dear or cheap and would not have exulted if meat had fallen to two pence a pound absorbed in the wilderness of the tale he had been writing weighing nicely the points of plot and construction relishing the recollection of this and that happy phrase and dreading failure here and there he left the rush and whistle of the gas flares behind him and began to touch upon pavements more deserted he had turned without taking note to the northward and was passing through an ancient fallen street where now notices of floors and offices to let hung out but still about it lingered the grace and the stiffness of the age of wigs a broad roadway a broad pavement and on each side a grave line of houses with long and narrow windows flush with the walls all of mellowed brickwork dyson walked with quick steps as he resolved that short work must be made of a certain episode but he was in that happy humor of invention and another chapter rose in the inner chamber of his brain and he dwelt on the circumstances he was to write down with curious pleasure it was charming to have the quiet streets to walk in and in his thought he made a whole district the cabinet of his studies and vowed he would come again heedless of his course he struck off to the east again and soon found himself involved in a squalid network of gray two-storied houses and then in the waste void and elements of brickwork the passages and unmade roads behind great factory walls encumbered with the refuse of the neighborhood forlorn ill-lighted and desperate a brief turn and there rose before him the unexpected a hill suddenly lifted from the level ground its steep ascent marked by the lighted lamps and eager as an explorer dyson found his way to the place wondering where his crooked paths had brought him here all was again decorous but hideous in the extreme the builder someone lost in the deep gloom of the early twenties had conceived the idea of twin villas in gray brick shaped in a manner to recall the outlines of the parthenon each with its classic form broadly marked with raised bands of stucco the name of the street was all strange and for a further surprise the top of the hill was crowned with an irregular plot of grass and fading trees called a square and here again the parthenon motive had persisted beyond the streets were curious wild in their irregularities here a row of sordid dingy dwellings 
dirty and disreputable in appearance, and there, without warning, stood a house, genteel and prim, with wire blinds and brazen knocker, as clean and trim as if it had been the doctor's house in some benighted little country town. These surprises and discoveries began to exhaust Dyson, and he hailed with delight the blazing windows of a public house, and went in with the intention of testing the beverage provided for the dwellers in this region, as remote as Libya and Pamphylia and the parts about Mesopotamia. The babble of voices from within warned him that he was about to assist at the true parliament of the London workmen, and he looked about him for that more retired entrance called private. When he had settled himself on an exiguous bench and ordered some beer, he began to listen to the jangling talk in the public bar beyond. It was a senseless argument, alternately furious and maudlin, with appeals to Bill and Tom, and medieval survivals of speech, words that Chaucer wrote belched out with zeal and relish, and the den of pots jerked down, and coppers wrapped smartly on the zinc counter, made a thorough base for it all. Dyson was calmly smoking his pipe between the sips of beer, when an indefinite-looking figure slid rather than walked into the compartment. The man started violently when he saw Dyson placidly sitting in the corner and glanced keenly about him. He seemed to be on wires, controlled by some electric machine, for he almost bolted out of the door when the barman asked with what he could serve him, and his hand shivered as he took the glass. Dyson inspected him with a little curiosity. He was muffled up almost to the lips, and a soft felt hat was drawn down over his eyes. He looked as if he shrank from every glance, and a more raucous voice, suddenly uplifted in the public bar, seemed to find in him a sympathy that made him shake and quiver like a jelly. It was pitiable to see anyone so thrilled with nervousness, and Dyson was about to address some trivial remark of casual inquiry to the man when another person came into the compartment and, laying a hand on his arm, muttered something in an undertone and vanished as he came. But Dyson had recognized him as the smooth-tongued and smooth-shaven Burton, and yet he thought little of it, for his whole faculty of observation was absorbed in the lamentable and yet grotesque spectacle before him. At the first touch of the hand on his arm, the unfortunate man had wheeled round as if spun on a pivot, and shrank back with a low, piteous cry, as if some dumb beast were caught in the toils. The blood fled away from the wretch's face, and the skin became gray, as if a shadow of death had passed in the air and fallen on it. And Dyson caught a choking whisper, Mr. Davies, for God's sake, have pity on me, Mr. Davies, on my oath, I say. And his voice sank to silence as he heard the message and strove in vain to bite his lips and summon up to his aid some tinge of manhood. He stood there a moment, wavering as the leaves of an aspen, and then he was gone out into the street, 
as dyson thought silently with his doom upon his head he had not been gone a minute when it suddenly flashed into dyson's mind that he knew the man it was undoubtedly the young man with spectacles for whom so many ingenious persons were searching the spectacles indeed were missing but the pale face the dark whiskers and the timid glances were enough to identify him dyson saw at once that by a succession of hazards he had unawares hit upon the scent of some desperate conspiracy wavering as the track of a loathsome snake in and out of the highways and byways of the london cosmos the truth was instantly pictured before him and he divined that all unconscious and unheeding he had been privileged to see the shadows of hidden forms chasing and hurrying and grasping and vanishing across the bright curtain of common life soundless and silent or only babbling fables and pretenses for him in an instant the jargoning of voices the garish splendor and all the vulgar tumult of the public house became part of magic for here before his eyes a scene in this grim mystery play had been enacted and he had seen human flesh grow gray with a palsy of fear the very hell of cowardice and terror had gaped wide within an arm's breadth in the midst of these reflections the barman came up and stared at him as if to hint that he had exhausted his right to take his ease and dyson bought another lease of the seat by an order for more beer as he pondered the brief glimpse of tragedy he recollected that with his first start of haunted fear the young man with whiskers had drawn his hand swiftly from his greatcoat pocket and that he had heard something fall to the ground and pretending to have dropped his pipe dyson began to grope in the corner searching with his fingers he touched something and drew it gently to him and with one brief glance as he put it quietly in his pocket he saw it was a little old-fashioned notebook bound in faded green morocco he drank down his beer at a gulp and left the place overjoyed at his fortunate discovery and busy with conjecture as to the possible importance of the find by turns he dreaded to find perhaps mere blank leaves or the labored follies of a betting book but the faded morocco cover seemed to promise better things and to hint at mysteries he piloted himself with no little difficulty out of the sour and squalid quarter he had entered with a light heart and emerging at gray's inn road struck off down guilford street and hastened home only anxious for a lighted candle and solitude dyson sat down at his bureau and placed the little book before him it was an effort to open the leaves and dare disappointment but in desperation at last he laid his finger between the pages at haphazard and rejoiced to see a compact range of writing with a margin and as it chanced three words caught his glance and stood out apart from the mass dyson read the gold tiberius and his face flushed with fortune and the lust of the hunter 
he turned at once to the first leaf of the pocket-book and proceeded to read with rapt interest the history of the young man with spectacles end of strange occurrence in clerkenwell history of the young man with spectacles from the filthy and obscure lodging situated i verily believe in one of the foulest slums of clerkenwell i indite this history of a life which daily threatened cannot last for very much longer every day nay every hour i know too well my enemies are drawing their nets closer about me even now i am condemned to be a close prisoner in my squalid room and i know that when i go out i shall go to my destruction this history if it chance to fall into good hands may perhaps be of service in warning young men of the dangers and pitfalls that most surely must accompany any deviation from the ways of rectitude my name is joseph walters when i came of age i found myself in possession of a small but sufficient income and i determined that i would devote my life to scholarship i do not mean the scholarship of these days i had no intention of associating myself with men whose lives are spent in the unspeakably degrading occupation of editing classics befouling the fair margins of the fairest books with idle and superfluous annotation and doing their utmost to give a lasting disgust of all that is beautiful an abbey church turned to the base use of a stable or bakehouse is a sorry sight but more pitiable still is a masterpiece spluttered over with the commentator's pen and his hideous mark c f for my part i chose the glorious career of scholar in its ancient sense i longed to possess encyclopedic learning to grow old amongst books to distill day by day and year after year the inmost sweetness of all worthy writings i was not rich enough to collect a library and i was therefore forced to betake myself to the reading-room of the british museum oh dim far-lifted and mighty dome mecca of many minds mausoleum of many hopes sad house where all desires fail for there men enter in with hearts uplifted and dreaming minds seeing in those exalted stairs a ladder to fame in that pompous portico the gate of knowledge and going in find but vain vanity and all but in vain there when the long streets are ringing is silence there eternal twilight and the odor of heaviness but there the blood flows thin and cold and the brain burns adjust there is the hunt of shadows and the chase of embattled phantoms a striving against ghosts and a war that has no victory o dome tomb of the quick surely in thy galleries where no reverberant voice can call sighs whisper ever and muttering of dead hopes and there men's souls mount like moths toward the flame and fall scorched and blackened beneath thee o dim far-lifted and mighty dome bitterly do i now regret the day when i took my place at a desk for the first time and began my studies 
i had not been an habitue of the place for many months when i became acquainted with a serene and benevolent gentleman a man somewhat past middle age who nearly always occupied a desk next to mine in the reading-room it takes little to make an acquaintance a casual offer of assistance a hint as to the search in the catalogue and the ordinary politeness of men who constantly sit near each other it was thus i came to know the man calling himself dr lipsius by degrees i grew to look for his presence and to miss him when he was away as was sometimes the case and so a friendship sprang up between us his immense range of learning was placed freely at my service he would often astonish me by the way in which he would sketch out in a few minutes the bibliography of a given subject and before long i had confided to him my ambitions ah he said you should have been a german i was like that myself when i was a boy it is a wonderful resolve an infinite career i will know all things yes it is a device indeed but it means this a life of labor without end and a desire unsatisfied at last the scholar has to die and die saying i know very little gradually by speeches such as these lipsius seduced me he would praise the career and at the same time hint that it was as hopeless as the search for the philosopher's stone and so by artful suggestions insinuated with infinite address he by degrees succeeded in undermining all my principles after all he used to say the greatest of all sciences the key to all knowledge is the science and art of pleasure rabelais was perhaps the greatest of all encyclopedic scholars and he as you know wrote the most remarkable book that has ever been written and what does he teach men in this book surely the joy of living i need not remind you of the words suppressed in most of the editions the key of all the rabelaisian mythology of all the enigmas of his grand philosophy vive joyeux there you have all his learning his work is the institutes of pleasure as the fine art the finest art there is the art of all arts rabelais had all science but he had all life too and we have gone a long way since his time you are enlightened i think you do not consider all the petty rules and by-laws that a corrupt society has made for its own selfish convenience as the immutable decrees of the eternal such were the doctrines he preached and it was by such insidious arguments line upon line here a little and there a little that he at last succeeded in making me a man at war with the whole social system i used to long for some opportunity to break the chains and to live a free life to be my own rule and measure i viewed existence with the eyes of a pagan and lipsius understood to perfection the art of stimulating the natural inclinations of a young man hitherto a hermit as i gazed up at the great dome i saw it flushed with the flames and colors of a world of enticement unknown to me my imagination played me a thousand wanton tricks and the forbidden drew me as surely as a lodestone draws on iron at last my resolution was taken and i boldly asked lipsius to be my guide 
he told me to leave the museum at my usual hour half past four to walk slowly along the northern pavement of great russell street and to wait at the corner of the street till i was addressed and then to obey in all things the instructions of the person who came up to me i carried out these directions and stood at the corner looking about me anxiously my heart beating fast and my breath coming in gasps i waited there for some time and had begun to fear i had been made the object of a joke when i suddenly became conscious of a gentleman who was looking at me with evident amusement from the opposite pavement of tottenham court road he came over and raising his hat politely begged me to follow him and i did so without a word wondering where we were going and what was to happen i was taken to a house of quiet and respectable aspect in a street lying to the north of oxford street and my guide rang the bell a servant showed us into a large room quietly furnished on the ground floor we sat there in silence for some time and i noticed that the furniture though unpretending was extremely valuable there were large oak presses two bookcases of extreme elegance and in one corner a carved chest which must have been medieval presently dr lipsius came in and welcomed me with his usual manner and after some desultory conversation my guide left the room then an elderly man dropped in and began talking to lipsius and from their conversation i understood that my friend was a dealer in antiques they spoke of the hittite seal and of the prospects of further discoveries and later when two or three more persons joined us there was an argument as to the possibility of a systematic exploration of the pre-celtic monuments in england i was in fact present at an archaeological reception of an informal kind and at nine o'clock when the antiquaries were gone i stared at lipsius in a manner that showed i was puzzled and sought an explanation now he said we will go upstairs as we passed up the stairs lipsius lighting the way with a hand lamp i heard the sound of a jarring lock and bolts and bars shot on at the front door my guide drew back a baize door and we went down a passage and i began to hear odd sounds a noise of curious mirth then he pushed me through a second door and my initiation began i cannot write down what i witnessed that night i cannot bear to recall what went on in those secret rooms fast shuttered and curtained so that no light should escape into the quiet street they gave me red wine to drink and a woman told me as i sipped it that it was wine of the red jar that avalonius had made another asked how i liked the wine of the fawns and i heard a dozen fantastic names while the stuff boiled in my veins and stirred i think something that had slept within me from the moment i was born it seemed as if my self-consciousness deserted me i was no longer a thinking agent but at once subject and object i mingled in the horrible sport and watched the mystery of the greek groves and fountains enacted before me saw the reeling dance and heard the music calling as i sat beside my mate and yet i was outside it all and viewed my own part as an idle spectator thus with strange rites they made me drink the cup and when i woke up in the morning i was one of them and had sworn to 
be faithful at first i was shown the enticing side of things i was bidden to enjoy myself and care for nothing but pleasure and lipsius himself indicated to me as the acutest enjoyment the spectacle of the terrors of the unfortunate persons who were from time to time decoyed into the evil house but after a time it was pointed out to me that i must take my share in the work and so i found myself compelled to be in my turn a seducer and thus it is on my conscience that i have led many to the depths of the pit one day lipsius summoned me to his private room and told me that he had a difficult task to give me he unlocked a drawer and gave me a sheet of typewritten paper and bade me read it it was without place or date or signature and ran as follows mr james headley f s a will receive from his agent in armenia on the twelfth instant a unique coin the gold tiberius it bears on the reverse a fawn with the legend victoria it is believed that this coin is of immense value mr headley will come up to town to show the coin to his friend professor memis of cheney's street oxford street on some date between the thirteenth and the eighteenth dr lipsius chuckled at my face of blank surprise when i laid down this singular communication you will have a good chance of showing your discretion he said this is not a common case it requires great management and infinite tact i am sure i wish i had a panurge in my service but we will see what you can do but it is not a joke i asked him how can you know or rather how can this correspondent of yours know that a coin has been dispatched from armenia to mr headley and how is it possible to fix the period in which mr headley will take it into his head to come up to town it seems to me a lot of guesswork my dear mr walters he replied we do not deal in guesswork here it would bore you if i went into all these little details the cogs and the wheels if i must say so which move the machine don't you think it is much more amusing to sit in front of the house and be astonished than to be behind the scenes and see the mechanism better tremble at the thunder believe me than see the man rolling the cannonball but after all you need not bother about the how and why you have your share to do of course i shall give you full instructions but a great deal depends on the way the thing is carried out i have often heard very young men maintain that style is everything in literature and i can assure you that the same maxim holds good in our far more delicate profession with us style is absolutely everything and that is why we have friends like yourself i went away in some perturbation he had no doubt designedly left everything in mystery and i did not know what part i should have to play though i had assisted at scenes of hideous revelry i was not yet dead to all echo of human feeling and i trembled lest i should receive the order to be mr headley's executioner End of part one of history of the young man with spectacles Part 2 of History of the Young Man with Spectacles 
A week later, it was on the 16th of the month, Dr. Lipsius made me a sign to come into his room. It is for tonight, he began. Please to attend carefully to what I am going to say, Mr. Walters, and on peril of your life, for it is a dangerous matter. On peril of your life, I say, follow these instructions to the letter. You understand? Well, tonight at about half past seven, you will stroll quietly up the Hampstead Road till you come to Vincent Street. Turn down here and walk along, taking the third turning to your right, which is Lambert Terrace. Then follow the terrace, cross the road, and go along Hertford Street, and so to Lillington Square. The second turning you will come to in the square is called Sheen Street, but in reality it is more a passage between blank walls than a street. Whatever you do, take care to be at the corner of this street at eight o'clock precisely. You will walk along it, and just at the bend, where you lose sight of the square, you will find an old gentleman with a white beard and whiskers. He will in all probability be abusing a cabman for having brought him to Sheen Street instead of Cheney Street. You will go up to him quietly and offer your services. He will tell you where he wants to go, and you will be so courteous as to offer to show him the way. I may say that Professor Memis moved into Cheney Street a month ago. Thus, Mr. Headley has never been to see him there, and moreover, he is very short-sighted and knows little of the topography of London. Indeed, he has quite lived the life of a learned hermit at Audley Hall. Well, need I say more to a man of your intelligence? You will bring him to this house. He will ring the bell, and a servant in quiet livery will let him in. Then your work will be done, and I am sure done well. You will leave Mr. Headley at the door, and simply continue your walk, and I shall hope to see you the next day. I really don't think there is anything more I can tell you. These minute instructions I took care to carry out to the letter. I confess that I walked up the Tottenham Court Road by no means blindly, but with an uneasy sense that I was coming to a decisive point in my life. The noise and rumor of the crowded pavements were to me but dumb show. I revolved again and again in ceaseless iteration the task that had been laid on me, and I questioned myself as to the possible results. As I got near the point of turning, I asked myself whether danger were not about my steps. The cold thought struck me that I was suspected and observed, and every chance foot passenger who gave me a second glance seemed to me an officer of police. My time was running out, the sky had darkened, and I hesitated half resolved to go no farther but to abandon Lipsius and his friend forever. I had almost determined to take this course when the conviction suddenly came to me that the whole thing was a gigantic joke, a fabrication of rank improbability. Who could have procured the information about the Armenian agent, I asked myself. By what means could Lipsius have known the particular day and the very train that Mr. Headley was to take? How to engage him to enter one special cab amongst the dozens waiting at Paddington? I vowed it a mere Milesian tale and went forward merrily, turned down Vincent Street, 
and threaded out the route that Lipsius had so carefully impressed upon me. The various streets he had named were all places of silence and an oppressive cheap gentility. It was dark, and I felt alone in the musty squares and crescents where people pattered by at intervals and the shadows were growing blacker. I entered Sheen Street and found it, as Lipsius had said, more a passage than a street. It was a byway, on one side a low wall and neglected gardens, and grim backs of a line of houses, and on the other a timber yard. I turned the corner and lost sight of the square, and then to my astonishment I saw the scene of which I had been told. A handsome cab had come to a stop beside the pavement, and an old man carrying a handbag was fiercely abusing the cabman, who sat on his perch the image of bewilderment. Yes, but I'm sure you said Sheen Street. That's where I brought you, I heard him saying as I came up, and the old gentleman boiled in a fury and threatened police and suits at law. The sight gave me a shock, and in an instant I resolved to go through with it. I strolled on, and without noticing the cabman lifted my hat politely to old Mr. Headley. Pardon me, sir, I said, but is there any difficulty? I see you are a traveler. Perhaps the cabman has made a mistake. Can I direct you? The old fellow turned to me, and I noticed that he snarled and showed his teeth like an ill-tempered cur as he spoke. This drunken fool has brought me here, he said. I told him to drive me to Cheney Street, and he brings me to this infernal place. I won't pay him a farthing, and I meant to have given him a handsome sum. I am going to call for the police and give him in charge. At this threat, the cabman seemed to take alarm. He glanced round as if to make sure that no policeman was in sight, and drove off grumbling loudly, and Mr. Headley grinned savagely with satisfaction at having saved his fare, and put back one and sixpence into his pocket. The handsome sum the cabman had lost. My dear sir, I said, I am afraid this piece of stupidity has annoyed you a great deal. It is a long way to Cheney Street, and you will have some difficulty in finding the place unless you know London pretty well. I know it very little, he replied. I never come up except on important business, and I've never been to Cheney Street in my life. Really, I should be happy to show you the way. I have been for a stroll, and it will not at all inconvenience me to take you to your destination. I want to go to Professor Memis at number 15. It's most annoying to me. I'm short-sighted, and I can never make out the numbers on the doors. This way, if you please, I said, and we set out. I did not find Mr. Headley an agreeable man. Indeed, he grumbled the whole way. He informed me of his name, and I took care to say, the well-known antiquary, and thenceforth I was compelled to listen to the history of his complicated squabbles with publishers, who had treated him, as he said, disgracefully. The man was a chapter in the irritability of authors. He told me that he had been on the point of making the fortune of several firms, but he had been compelled to abandon the design owing to their rank ingratitude. Besides these ancient histories of wrong and the more recent misadventure of the cabman, 
he had another grievous complaint to make as he came along in the train he had been sharpening a pencil and the sudden jolt of the engine as it drew up at a station had driven the penknife against his face inflicting a small triangular wound just on the cheekbone which he showed me he denounced the railway company heaped imprecations on the head of the driver and talked of claiming damages thus he grumbled all the way not noticing in the least where he was going and so unamiable did his conduct appear to me that i began to enjoy the trick i was playing on him nevertheless my heart beat a little faster as we turned into the street where lipsius was waiting a thousand accidents i thought might happen some chance might bring one of headley's friends to meet us perhaps though he knew not cheney street he might know the street where i was taking him in spite of his short sight he might possibly make out the number or in a sudden fit of suspicion he might make an inquiry of the policeman at the corner thus every step upon the pavement as we drew nearer to the goal was to me a pang and a terror and every approaching passenger carried a certain threat of danger i gulped down my excitement with an effort and made shift to say pretty quietly number fifteen i think you said that is the third house from this if you will allow me i will leave you now i have been delayed a little and my way lies on the other side of tottenham court road he snarled out some kind of thanks and i turned my back and walked swiftly in the opposite direction a minute or two later i looked round and saw mr headley standing on the doorstep and then the door opened and he went in for my part i gave a sigh of relief i hastened to get away from the neighborhood and endeavored to enjoy myself in merry company the whole of the next day i kept away from lipsius i felt anxious but i did not know what had happened or what was happening and a reasonable regard for my own safety told me that i should do well to remain quietly at home my curiosity however to learn the end of the odd drama in which i had played a part stung me to the quick and late in the evening i made up my mind to see how events had turned out lipsius nodded when i came in and asked me if i could give him five minutes talk we went into his room and he began to walk up and down while i sat waiting for him to speak my dear mr walters he said at length i congratulate you warmly your work was done in the most thorough and artistic manner you will go far look he went to his escritoire and pressed a secret spring a drawer flew out and he laid something on the table it was a gold coin i took it up and examined it eagerly and read the legend about the figure of the fawn victoria i said smiling yes it was a great capture which we owe to you i had a great difficulty in persuading mr headley that a little mistake had been made that was how i put it he was very disagreeable and indeed ungentlemanly about it didn't he strike you as a very cross old man i held the coin admiring the choice and rare design clear-cut as if from the mint and i thought the fine gold glowed and burnt like a lamp and what finally became of mr headley i said at last lipsius smiled and shrugged his shoulders what on earth does it matter he said he might be here or there or anywhere but what possible consequence could it be besides your question rather surprises me you are an intelligent 
man, Mr. Walters. Just think it over, and I'm sure you won't repeat the question. My dear sir, I said, I hardly think you are treating me fairly. You have paid me some handsome compliments on my share in the capture, and I naturally wish to know how the matter ended. From what I saw of Mr. Headley, I should think you must have had some difficulty with him. He gave me no answer for the moment, but began to walk up and down the room, apparently absorbed in thought. Well, he said at last, I suppose there is something in what you say. We are certainly indebted to you. I have said that I have a high opinion of your intelligence, Mr. Walters. Just look here, will you? He opened a door communicating with another room and pointed. There was a great box lying on the floor, a queer coffin-shaped thing. I looked at it and saw it was a mummy case like those in the British Museum, vividly painted in the brilliant Egyptian colors, with I knew not what proclamation of dignity or hopes of life immortal. The mummy, swathed about in the robes of death, was lying within, and the face had been uncovered. "'You are going to send this away?' I said, forgetting the question I had put. Yes, I have an order from a local museum. Look a little more closely, Mr. Walters. Puzzled by his manner, I peered into the face while he held up the lamp. The flesh was black with the passing of the centuries, but as I looked I saw upon the right cheekbone a small triangular scar, and the secret of the mummy flashed upon me. I was looking at the dead body of the man whom I had decoyed into that house. There was no thought or design of action in my mind. I held the accursed coin in my hand, burning me with a foretaste of hell, and I fled as I would have fled from pestilence and death, and dashed into the street in blind horror, not knowing where I went. I felt the gold coin grasped in my clenched fist, and throwing it away, I knew not where, I ran on and on, through by-streets and dark ways, till at last I issued out into a crowded thoroughfare and checked myself. Then, as consciousness returned, I realized my instant peril and understood what would happen if I fell into the hands of Lipsius. I knew that I had put forth my finger to thwart a relentless mechanism rather than a man. My recent adventure with the unfortunate Mr. Headley had taught me that Lipsius had agents in all quarters, and I foresaw that if I fell into his hands he would remain true to his doctrine of style and cause me to die a death of some horrible and ingenious torture. I bent my whole mind to the task of outwitting him and his emissaries, three of whom I knew to have proved their ability for tracking down persons who for various reasons preferred to remain obscure. These servants of Lipsius were two men and a woman, and the woman was incomparably the most subtle and the most deadly. Yet I considered that I too had some portion of craft, and I took my resolve. Since then, I have matched myself day by day and hour by hour against the ingenuity of Lipsius and his myrmidons. For a time I was successful, though they beat furiously after me in the covert of London. I remained perdu, and I watched with some amusement their frantic efforts to recover the scent lost in two or three minutes. Every lure and wile was put forth to entice me from my hiding place. 
i was informed by the medium of the public prints that what i had taken had been recovered and meetings were proposed in which i might hope to gain a great deal without the slightest risk i laughed at their endeavors and began a little to despise the organization i had so dreaded and ventured more abroad not once or twice but several times i recognized the two men who were charged with my capture and i succeeded in eluding them easily at close quarters and a little hastily i decided that i had nothing to dread and that my craft was greater than theirs but in the meanwhile while i congratulated myself on my cunning the third of lipsius emissaries was weaving her nets and in an evil hour i paid a visit to an old friend a literary man named russell who lived in a quiet street in bayswater the woman as i found out too late a day or two ago occupied rooms in the same house and i was followed and tracked down too late as i have said i recognized that i had made a fatal mistake and that i was besieged sooner or later i shall find myself in the power of an enemy without pity and so surely as i leave this house i shall go to receive doom i hardly dare to guess how it will at last fall upon me my imagination always a vivid one paints to me appalling pictures of the unspeakable torture which i shall probably endure and i know that i shall die with lipsius standing near and gloating over the refinements of my suffering and my shame hours nay minutes have become very precious to me i sometimes pause in the midst of anticipating my tortures to wonder whether even now i cannot hit upon some supreme stroke some design of infinite subtlety to free myself from the toils but i find that the faculty of combination has left me i am as the scholar in the old myth deserted by the power which has helped me hitherto i do not know when the supreme moment will come but sooner or later it is inevitable before long i shall receive sentence and from the sentence to execution will not be long i cannot remain here a prisoner any longer i shall go out to-night when the streets are full of crowds and clamors and make a last effort to escape it was with profound astonishment that dyson closed the little book and thought of the strange series of incidents which had brought him into touch with the plots and counterplots connected with the gold tiberius he had bestowed the coin carefully away and he shuddered at the bare possibility of its place of deposit becoming known to the evil band who seemed to possess such extraordinary sources of information it had grown late while he read and he put the pocket-book away hoping with all his heart that the unhappy walters might even at the eleventh hour escape the doom he dreaded End of History of the Young Man with Spectacles Adventure of the Deserted Residence A wonderful story, as you say, an extraordinary sequence and play of coincidence. I confess that your expressions when you first showed me the gold Tiberius were not exaggerated, but do you think that Walters has really some fearful fate to dread? 
i cannot say who can presume to predict events when life itself puts on the robe of coincidence and plays a drama perhaps we have not yet reached the last chapter in the queer story but look we are drawing near to the verge of london there are gaps you see in the serried ranks of brick and a vision of green fields beyond dyson had persuaded the ingenious mr phillips to accompany him on one of those aimless walks to which he was himself so addicted starting from the very heart of london they had made their way westward through the stony avenues and were now just emerging from the red lines of an extreme suburb and presently the half-finished road ended a quiet lane began and they were beneath the shade of elm trees the yellow autumn sunlight that had lit up the bare distance of the suburban street now filtered down through the boughs of the trees and shone on the glowing carpet of fallen leaves and the pools of rain glittered and shot back the gleam of light over all the broad pastures there was peace and the happy rest of autumn before the great winds began and afar off london lay all vague and immense amidst the veiling mist here and there a distant window catching the sun and kindling with fire and a spire gleaming high and below the streets in shadow and the turmoil of life dyson and phillips walked on in silence beneath the high hedges till at a turn of the lane they saw a mouldering and ancient gate standing open and the prospect of a house at the end of a moss-grown carriage drive there is survival for you said dyson it has come to its last days i imagine look how the laurels have grown gaunt and weedy and black and bare beneath look at the house covered with yellow wash and patched with green damp why the very notice-board which informs all and singular that the place is to be let has cracked and half fallen suppose we go in and see it said phillips i don't think there is anybody about they turned up the drive and walked slowly toward this remnant of old days it was a large straggling house with curved wings at either end and behind a series of irregular roofs and projections showing that the place had been added to at diverse dates the two wings were roofed in cupola fashion and at one side as they came nearer they could see a stable-yard and a clock turret with a bell and the dark masses of gloomy cedars amidst all the lineaments of dissolution there was but one note of contrast the sun was setting beyond the elm trees and all the west and south were in flames on the upper windows of the house the glow shone reflected and it seemed as if blood and fire were mingled before the yellow front of the mansion stained as dyson had remarked with gangrenous patches green and blackening stretched what once had been no doubt a well-kept lawn but it was now rough and ragged and nettles and great docks and all manner of coarse weeds struggled in the place of the flower-beds the urns had fallen from their pillars beside the walk and lay broken in shards upon the ground and everywhere from grass-plot and path a fungoid growth had sprung up and multiplied and lay dank and slimy like a festering sore upon the earth 
in the middle of the rank grass of the lawn was a desolate fountain the rim of the basin was crumbling and pulverized with decay and within the waters stood stagnant with green scum for the lilies that had once bloomed there rust had eaten into the bronze flesh of the triton that stood in the middle and the conch shell he held was broken here said dyson one might moralize over decay and death here all the stage is decked out with the symbols of dissolution the cedarn gloom and twilight hang heavy around us and everywhere within the pale dankness has found a harbor and the very air is changed and brought to accord with the scene to me i confess this deserted house is as moral as a graveyard and i find something sublime in that lonely triton deserted in the midst of his water-pool he is the last of the gods they have left him and he remembers the sound of water falling on water and the days that were sweet i like your reflections extremely said phillips but i may mention that the door of the house is open let us go in then the door was just ajar and they passed into the mouldy hall and looked in at a room on one side it was a large room going far back and the rich old red flock paper was peeling from the walls in long strips and blackened with vague patches of rising damp the ancient clay the dank reeking earth rising up again and subduing all the work of men's hands after the conquest of many years the floor was thick with the dust of decay and the painted ceiling fading from all gay colors and light fancies of cupids in a career and disfigured with sores of dampness seemed transmuted into other work no longer the amorini chased one another pleasantly with limbs that sought not to advance and hands that merely simulated the act of grasping at the wreathed flowers but it appeared some savage burlesque of the old careless world and of its cherished conventions and the dance of the loves had become a dance of death black pustules and festering sores swelled and clustered on fair limbs and smiling faces showed corruption and the fairy blood had boiled with the germs of foul disease it was a parable of the leaven working and worms devouring for a banquet the heart of the rose strangely under the painted ceiling against the decaying walls two old chairs still stood alone the sole furniture of the empty place high-backed with curving arms and twisted legs covered with faded gold leaf and upholstered in tattered damask they too were a part of the symbolism and struck dyson with surprise what have we here he said who has sat in these chairs who clad in peach-bloom satin with lace ruffles and diamond buckles all golden a conte fleurettes to his companion phillips we are in another age i wish i had some snuff to offer you but failing that i beg to offer you a seat and we will sit and smoke tobacco a horrid practice but i am no pedant 
they sat down on the queer old chairs and looked out of the dim and grimy panes to the ruined lawn and the fallen urns and the deserted triton presently dyson ceased his imitation of eighteenth-century airs he no longer pulled forward imaginary ruffles or tapped a ghostly snuff-box it's a foolish fancy he said at last but i keep thinking i hear a noise like someone groaning listen no i can't hear it now there it is again did you notice it phillips no i can't say i heard anything but i believe that old places like this are like shells from the shore ever echoing with noises the old beams mouldering piecemeal yield a little and groan and such a house as this i can fancy all resonant at night with voices the voices of matter so slowly and so surely transformed into other shapes the voice of the worm that gnaws at last the very heart of the oak the voice of stone grinding on stone and the voice of the conquest of time they sat still in the old armchairs and grew graver in the musty ancient air the air of a hundred years ago i don't like the place said phillips after a long pause to me it seems as if there were a sickly unwholesome smell about it a smell of something burning you are right there is an evil odor here i wonder what it is hark did you hear that a hollow sound a noise of infinite sadness and infinite pain broke in upon the silence and the two men looked fearfully at one another horror and the sense of unknown things glimmering in their eyes come said dyson we must see into this and they went into the hall and listened in the silence do you know said phillips it seems absurd but i could almost fancy that the smell is that of burning flesh they went up the hollow sounding stairs and the odor became thick and noisome stifling the breath and a vapor sickening as the smell of the chamber of death choked them a door was open and they entered the large upper room and clung hard to one another shuddering at the sight they saw a naked man was lying on the floor his arms and legs stretched wide apart and bound to pegs that had been hammered into the boards the body was torn and mutilated in the most hideous fashion scarred with the marks of red-hot irons a shameful ruin of the human shape but upon the middle of the body a fire of coals was smouldering the flesh had been burnt through the man was dead but the smoke of his torment mounted still a black vapor the young man with spectacles said mr dyson end of adventure of the deserted residence end of the three impostors by arthur mackin